I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Today, we are pleased to welcome to Encountering Silence, Father Richard Rohr. Father Richard is a Franciscan priest, the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and is the Dean of the Living School, an online learning community that is anchored in a contemplative model of education. Father Richard is the author of numerous books, including the newly released Richard Rohr, Essential Teachings on Love, which is a volume in the Orbis Books Modern Spiritual Masters series. He is a gifted speaker, and his audiobooks and recordings are as popular as his books. And if all that weren't enough, his wisdom is featured in a daily meditation email that has over a quarter of a million subscribers. Father Richard, it is a joy to welcome you into our circle of encountering silence. Well, it's my joy. Thank you for having me. And to lead off, we'd love it if you could just speak very briefly about your relationship with silence, particularly in light of your vocation as a Franciscan. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I'm not sure. Are people going to see this visually? No, it's no. just audio no, no. only. Okay. Yep. Well, where I'm sitting is in my little hermitage. It's basically a one-room little house. And I've been able to live here almost 20 years. The Franciscans are right across the parking lot here at the, the parish. But it gives me the best of both worlds. I'm able to, to celebrate the uh, Eucharist on Sunday with the Mexican-American parish. But then to retreat back here to this little silent space. And most people don't have this luxury to have a protected uh, space of silence. I have to say, and I say this, having most of my friends love music. Now, I love music, but honestly, and I'm almost ashamed to say it, if I would have to choose between music and silence, I'd always choose silence. Mm. And, uh, mm. and I'm an extrovert by nature, so this isn't something that uh, I, I think I would come to naturally. But you mentioned the Franciscans. They did give me very early discipline training and days of silence. Then our novitiate was pre-Vatican II. In fact, the year immediately preceding Vatican II. Maybe it was medieval in some ways, but the good part of it was it taught us how to be quiet mm -hmm. for extended periods. So it became a discipline that doesn't feel like a discipline anymore, but feels like the most spacious way to live. Let me just call it that. And, you know, I probably say that because I am a, a public speaker, or I have been most of my past life. I, I just turned 75, so I don't travel nearly as much now. But my many years on the road... You know, I was known uh, for being the the talkative one. <laughs> <laughs> I probably talked way too much. Uh, so I guess I want to say that for the extroverts who might be listening. And I know you've heard that quote from, I have it in several of my books, when I gave the retreat to the Trappist at Gethsemane. And uh, I heard the quote from Thomas Merton where he told the community, and they never forgave him for it. You know, <laughs> really, you are not, many of you are not really contemplatives. You're just introverts. Yeah, um, that's and a, that's a that, that seems like just a clever statement. But it's, it's so true 
monasteries are filled with introverts. Nothing wrong with that's at least <laughs> half of the human race. Mm, yeah. But to idealize introversion as automatically prayerful, automatically holier, mm. that just ain't true. <laughs> and you all know that. But it, it needs to be said. So I think the reason I say it here is that silence is a chosen space, not a, a space you're because you're running away from people or running away from talking. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a way, a, a place where you can move beyond what I call the dualistic character of words. And that's their function, mm -hmm. and that's why we need words, and that's why we love words, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But we look at the first 2,000 years of Christianity, and especially the last 500, after the invention of the printing press, and you would think Christianity was largely a verbal religion, because that's where all of our arguments have been. <laughs> Endlessly <laughs> verbal level, you know, not orthopraxy, but orthodoxy. So let me just stop by summing it up in that way that I believe the primary orthopraxy praxis is silence. Mm -hmm. Primary. Mm -hmm. it, it precedes all other spiritual practices, all other spiritual disciplines. And of course, we're first of all talking, and I know you know what I'm going to say, about interior silence. Right. And that, that takes a while to, uh, to achieve, because yeah. most of us, uh, our mind fills up as soon as we open our eyes in the morning mm -hmm. with ideas, projects, agendas, arguments, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they're all of a verbal character. So to, to sort of jump beyond them, or move beneath them, I don't know which is better, I think you have to go to silence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Father Richard, you mentioned Thomas Merton, and anytime someone mentions Thomas Merton, I can't ignore it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So he's been so important to the work I've done, and clearly Thomas Merton seems to be very important to you, and you mention him a lot in your work. And, of course, um, Many people know that Thomas Merton was originally going to become a Franciscan monk. Yes. Um, we lost him, darling. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the role Thomas Merton has played in your life or how you were first introduced to him. Oh, I'd love to. You know, I was in the minor seminary in the late 50s, and I remember pulling this book off the shelf and Thomas Merton, we're talking about 1958 or 59. He wasn't the, the grand figure he is now. And it was the sign of Jonah, sign of Jonah. And all I know is he, I must have only been 15 years old or 16. All I knew is this was great stuff. <laughs> it was so different. Than the usual Catholic propaganda, forgive me, uh, <laughs> uh, that we read, where it was just repeating the party line over and over again. Right. Here was a man who knew the party line, if I can call it that, but had taken the time to find out what it really meant. Mm. What were those words, again, really saying? Then, if you don't mind me giving my, my personal encounter, on June 2nd, 1961, I graduated from high school in Cincinnati, and my parents from Kansas came to pick me up and drive me home, and we usually went through Indianapolis, but that year I said, let's go down through Louisville, because there's a monastery down there. Now, again, not many people had heard of it then, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. I still remember the moment we stepped out of the car. My younger brother and sister were with me. And I'm so eager just to see the spot, never thinking I'd get to see him. And believe it or not, the door opens to the guest house and out, I mean, just 20 feet in front of us steps Thomas Merton. Oh, my Lord. Mm -hmm. and, but the story gets better. <laughs> <laughs> and I still think, are you making this up, Richard? <laughs> but he is ushering out of the guest house 
Mother Teresa. Oh, my God. (laughs) In front of us, the two of them, the two great Catholic icons of the 20th century. And uh, when I gave that same retreat in 1985 at, at Gethsemane, I said, do you remember when Mother Teresa was here? They said, oh, yeah, but... None of us got to see her, just the great Thomas Merton. (laughs) (laughs) And wouldn't you know, that was the half hour I drove up. Now, I don't know how God orchestrates such things. Unbelievable. But I think in many ways, he was handing me two icons of action and contemplation. Yes. And Mm. two people who put both of them together. Yes. And of course, that became the name of our our center, which is right around the corner from here. Right, right. So, yes, he's been and continues to be a major influence in my life. I, I can never open up a Merton book that I not do not find inspiring. Yeah. And that a man can, in the 1950s and 60s, be saying things that are apropos in 2018 is right. really mind-blowing. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. 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 I have to ask, so did you have a chance to speak? To oh, no, no. I mean, I was just gaga. Yeah. <laughs> I'm holding my brother and sister and parents back. They don't know who either of these figures are. <laughs> I'm so gaga, I just, I'm speechless. And he, after he ushers her to the car and her driver, he walks back by and gives us a little nod. But, you know, I still believed in their vow of silence. And, right. Uh, and this is before Vatican II, remember. Right. This is uh, 1961. Mm-hmm. So you didn't uh, talk to priests, right. particularly Trappists, right. without right. an invitation to do so. Right. But the fear was on my part, not on his. Yeah. 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 That's I unbelievable. But and I mean this story is so inspiring and and you've you've raised a question for me now because as you said your work now is in the center of action and contemplation and a lot of my work is very similar I do very similar work here in Connecticut and when people oh. ask me what I do I say well if you want to know I'm kind of doing what Richard Rohr does I said, oh my goodness <laughs> and but. so people say oh okay now I understand what you're doing so yes. so my question comes out of this space we're here we're interested in silence and the podcast floats around this and you've already said it and I agree completely that there's silence in both the activist and in the contemplative world. Yeah. And so I'd really like you to unpack a little bit for that for me uh, and for, for us, because the question I want to know is, do you think it's more important or maybe maybe there's different paths here? But what's, th- what's the issue? Do we, is it harder to make activists contemplative or contemplatives activists? Because I find that often people feel like they're two yeah. separate things. Okay. Yeah, well, just know, and I'm sure you do know, temperamentally, we all come from one side or the other. Yes. Start on one side or the other by temperament. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's equally hard for both. Okay. The best way is to, let's first of all clear away what we're going to call the false silence. Yes. Uh, And and, uh, are the false activism, too. Yes. So the false silence is this, just if I can protect myself from any irritation. I mean, I remember when I used to give a lot of sisters retreats, and without any doubt, the primary sin that they confessed was distractions at prayer. Mm. You can just tell, well, why would that be a sin to begin with? But you can tell they were trying to achieve something that was impossible. Mm-hmm. Now we know that there is no such thing as a distraction. Mm-hmm. Whatever enters your mind is data for letting go, yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you will, or for later processing. Yeah. Uh, but, but there is no such thing as a distraction, and that's true. But I think we spent an awful lot of time, now I'm talking very Franciscan now. Excellent. But you know, Francis was reacting against the placing of monasteries out in the country, right? We were always right in the middle of the city where he wanted us to be because that he felt, this was my bachelor's thesis, by the way, from college. (laughs) He felt this was an escape to think, and he loved beautiful Italy, but to think you had to have a pristine environment 
and natural quiet to love Jesus. Huh? So, I, But I do think that's what we'd call pox perniciosa, dangerous peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a manufactured silence that isn't a one silence, W-O-N, that you have to choose and work for. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side, I do think there's a false activism that thinks because we're doing a good thing, we're helping the poor. Yeah. We're uh, working for justice. And God knows we need more and more and more of that. Absolutely. So I'm not trying to any way downplay it. But just because you're doing a good thing, if you're doing it from a, a busy, bothered <laughs> uh, <laughs> self, Merton says this in many places, it, it usually doesn't bear a lot of long-lasting fruit. Right. Because what people really get from you is not your verbal message. And believe me, I've tried. But they finally get your energy. And if your energy is uh, filled with self, filled with the need to win or be right, or um, it doesn't last long. It doesn't transform people. So that would be the false peace it usually isn't called peace, but just false activism. Mm-hmm. Doing the right thing, but not from a purified motive. Mm-hmm. And we don't even know that. We're convinced that because we believe in Matthew 25, and I hope you do believe in Matthew yes. 25, that <laughs> that, that justifies uh, pushing uh, people around or yeah, whatever else it might be. Right. You're reminding me, I don't know if you ever met Kenneth Leach. He was a, a British, he was an Anglican priest who wrote a number of books. Him. I don't think I met him. Yeah. yeah. I met him on a couple of occasions, a delightful man. And he, one time he was speaking here in Atlanta and he was talking about do-goodery. And he said, you can always tell when somebody is a compulsive do-gooder because of the hunted look on the people they are doing good to. Oh, my goodness. That's the point. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, I think that, that, you know, back to your Matthew 25 analogy, we can easily um, do good things for maybe very selfish or narcissistic reasons. Oh. And, you know, and of course, uh, and there's no such thing as pure motives, no, but, but we no, can also, right. we can, we can so. look at the, at, at this, where the center of gravity is in our, uh-huh. in our motives. Very good. And, yeah. yeah. Very so. good. It's good. Yeah. Uh, Richard, you tell a really charming and poignant story um, of your novitiate as a Franciscan when the sum total of your instruction and contemplation was to simply think without thinking. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm curious if, if you were a novice master with a group of, of folks, uh, people embracing intentional spirituality, how would you introduce them to contemplation? Well, let me start with the problem again. Forgive me. I, I hate to, I don't want to end there, but <laughs> you know, tried without any success to get a contemplative seminary in any major Christian denomination with no success, right? mm. because the young person coming to seminary wants training, they want a degree, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word, they want a career. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not all bad, but you can see why the monastic orders in particular, we're trying to move apart from this careerism that is endemic to the clergy, and they don't know it, they really don't know my men's work taught me this, that the young male is seeking his own ego structure, his own acceptability, his own power, if you will. And he has to do that. That's what I talk about in Falling Upward, the, the necessary task of the first half of life. You've got to do that. But the trouble is when you're on that upward climb, and that's what it is, you don't know it. But I've tried to give contemplative retreats to seminarians and mainline clergy of most denominations, it's only those in, who in the second half of life who show any interest. I mean, any. Interesting. Any mm. interest. Uh, and, and by second half of life, I don't just mean chronological. Uh, there are some people in their 20s who are in the second half of life spiritually, mm. usually mm-hmm. because of suffering, because of 
their humble nature or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So you're asking a good question. You know, uh, the National Priest Convention is going to be here in Albuquerque in June. And uh, they came out here in January already to meet with me. And they want me to give them a retreat on nothing but contemplation. Hmm. First of all, recognizing the immense need for the diocesan clergy. But sure enough, this whole planning team were tended to be men in my age group. You know? hmm. And some have even said, we're not sure the young clergy will even come. Yeah. <laughs> now, they're hoping they're wrong, but they're just asking such different questions. Usually, again, if they're in the liturgical churches, a preoccupation with what I call social prayer, liturgical prayer, where they're in charge. Uh, I'm not saying that in a put-down way, but um, the obsession with liturgy of course, keeps them from any concern for contemplation. Those are two different tracks. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can't have a contemplative liturgy. Of course you can. The Trappists do a great job of it. But by and large, if you get too obsessed with liturgy, 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 what the prophet Jeremiah called the sanctuary, the sanctuary, the sanctuary, (laughs) (laughs) you you just never get around to... uh, the prayer of quiet, which you can do 24 hours a day and does not require clerical intervention. Mm. Uh. So I don't think we recognize it, but we clergy have a vested interest. This sounds terrible. I don't mean it negatively, but in not (laughs) teaching people contemplation. Mm Because on a certain level, we're working ourselves out of a job. Mm -hmm. They're going to be less codependent upon our liturgies. If you look at all seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, and I love the sacraments, but every single one of them revolves around the presence of the priest. Yeah. Yeah. This this cannot be the gospel. And that's why I, with some hesitation, encourage my women friends to seek ordination. You know, do you really want to feminize this model I, I'm glad some of them are, frankly, but uh, be careful because it yeah. is social prayer, public prayer, where and there's a place for that. Mm-hmm. But if we continue to gather people for social prayer who don't know what to do before they come to church and after they come to church, I see no in-depth future to Christianity. It's going to be argumentative like it is right now. Mm. Mm. No, even arguing with Pope Francis, you know, it's uh, because that's all it knows how to do is argue when you don't love this wonderful silence that you're talking about. Yeah. One of your books, uh, The Naked Now, the subtitle is Learning to See as the Mystics See. And so listening to you talking about the first half of life and the second half of life, and and I just have, have to jump in. I um I cut my teeth at the Shalem Institute. I know oh, yes. Tilden, Ed- Tilden Edwards is a friend of yours. Next month, yeah. Uh, well, um, I um I was 26 when I did their oh, um, what yeah. is now now called the Personal Spiritual Deepening Program. Back then it was called something else, but it was the six month you know intensive uh-huh. you know three hours yes. a week training in silent prayer, and of course, I think the next youngest person was 20 years older than me. I remember talking to my spiritual director at the time, and I said, where are the young contemplatives? And she said, Carl, you're an anomaly. (laughs) (laughs) You would have been. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. But, but back to the whole thing about seeing, 
you know, I, I, it's fascinating for me. And this is something that I reflect on a lot is what is the gift of contemplation or, you know, to being, make it more for this podcast, the gift of silence for the person in the first half of life. And so I'm wondering, and if you have any thoughts, I'd love for you to jump in. If, if this, this notion of seeing, if this notion of learning how to see a certain way is part of the gift for the, young, the younger adult. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or not. Well, you know, I alluded to it. It seems without some encounter with limits, what I'm going to call suffering, I don't see any people in the first half of life have even much desire for deeper seeing. You know, they don't feel a need for it. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're living on the comfort, control, uh, success track, uh, contemplation really doesn't make a bit of sense to you. Mm -hmm. There's no felt need to go deeper because the surface appears to be working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, we call it now white privilege. We call it this this great blindness that comes from always being in the dominant group, whether that be by gender or by uh, race or by nationality, whatever it might be. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm certainly agreeing with, with the question uh, <laughs> that I don't think there's even much interest in it. You know, we're inviting this summer at our major conspire conference, a black theologian, uh, Barbara Holmes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she's written a marvelous book, Joy Unspeakable. Uh, we really want to, I'd love to have her on faculty even, because I think she's helping us to recognize that we've been maybe unduly influenced by both monasticism and Buddhism to think mm. that the only entrance way is 20 minutes of sitting in silence morning and evening, as it were. <laughs> she makes a very good case for, you know, liturgies of lament, uh, the yeah. moaning black spirituals of the black people yeah. that led many people to a much more real con contemplative stance than simply our method of sitting in silence. Mm -hmm. And I say this after writing The Naked Now, and my last book, Just This, where I give people all kind of ways to get into the silence. Yeah. But uh, if people do get into it in the first half of life, into contemplation or silence, it's almost always by uh, some encounter with limits. Right. Hmm. We call it that instead of suffering, because we're, we're so afraid of the word suffering. But without uh, limits entering your life, you tend to define your religion in terms of spiritual ascending, not not descending. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And well, it's just true to yeah, me. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, of course, I've been observing it. people for fifty years. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, it, it makes complete sense to me because what you're doing, uh, and what that theologian that you've invited to come is doing, talking about lament. Yeah. She returning us to the way of tears, you know, that the Christian path was a way of tears, that when you f when you entered into silence, you wept for there. It's, uh, there is a death yes. to who you think you are and yeah. and to your limits. And and I, one of the desert masters said something like, I, I forget who it is. I don't know if it's exactly in the East or, or if it's like Abba Pullman or who it, who it was, but. There's a quote, something like, if you tell me you're saved and I do not see your face covered in tears for 24 hours a day, seven wow. days a week, I don't believe it, you know? And it's and this... Efren, Efren the Syrian said things like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's this idea, not that they have this weeping for our sins, but not like, oh, I'm such a sinner, but there's this... this confrontation with limits is what I think they're getting at. Yeah. Oh. And and I so it makes complete sense to me. It's the only people who can know God are people who have the luxury and the training to sit in silence twice a day for 20 minutes. Yeah. 99% <laughs> of the humans God has ever created will never know God. Right. But if the entrance way 
is the world of limitation. Mm-hmm. Almost all of us, if we take advantage mm-hmm. of those moments and mm-hmm. situations, almost all of us can know God. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for understanding it. A lot of people don't. It's so beautiful. Even in the contemplative community, who have made a God out of false silence. Yeah. Not false. Yeah. 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 This so, is this is reminding me a lot of of rhythm and. Uh, in your book, The Immortal Diamond, you talk a lot about recognizing the poetry within us. Mm. Um, and I, I, I sense that, you know, when I do go into the silence, uh, we often are able to do that. And you also mention about um, the rhythm humming within us. And can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of rhythm uh, as it pertains to silence or, you know, contemplative life? And even just, you know, maybe that's expanding on the balance of of silence and political action and things like this. You know, to state it in the most general way, I think life proceeds forward by three steps forward, two steps backward, Mm -hmm. getting it, losing it, finding it, losing it. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't, progress simply doesn't happen in the entire known physical universe. By nonstop growth, mm. there's got to be fire. There's got to be flood. There's got to be death. There's got to be pushback. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, John Dominic Crossan in his last book on how you can read the Bible and still be a Christian. What a title! <laughs> <laughs> he makes the point, which I struggle with with every class of students here. You know, how can the Bible itself? be so filled with so many violent, grossly violent passages, Mm -hmm. terrible patriarchy, abusive patriarchy. Uh, I mean, every sin is in there, and and some people are attracted to those passages. Mm -hmm. So we see it even in the Bible, the pushback is included. The resistance to the great revelation of God is resisted. Mm-hmm. And it's in the overcoming of the resistance that we we proceed forward, not by the denying of the resistance, the avoiding of the resistance, you see. So, yeah. right, I, uh, right. but you and I, and you're all younger than me, but mm-hmm. we, weren't trained, we weren't trained to think that way, you know. We're, we are much more formed than we realize by the Western philosophy of progress, yes. which was Everything's just getting better and better, yes. straight line forward. Yeah. And if we're raised in America, even triple that, you know, because right. that's been our short history, seemingly. Mm. Now, Native people wouldn't say that. Black people wouldn't say that. Right. But white people think this has been a wonderful 200-year series of movements forward. So history and the Bible itself, is filled with constant paradoxical movement. Yeah. Get it, lose it, forward, backward, forward, backward, forward, backward. Yeah. Uh, in our living school here, uh, Cynthia Bourgeau, who's one of the core faculty, uh, an Anglican woman priest, mm-hmm. she calls it third force thinking. Maybe you're familiar with mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever you have a new arising of a new level of thought, you will certain as the dawn have resistance to it. And then you wait for the X factor, which we call grace. And you have to wait sometimes a long time yeah. to come to the third new arising. Right. And then sure as the dawn, that becomes the new holy affirming. And that's going to be resisted. Mm-hmm. But who of us were trained to think that way? Right. Mm-hmm. Almost nobody. Right. Yeah. We had no patience with paradox, with mystery, with resistance, with with darkness. Right. And here's one of the reasons I think a lot of us still admire our Catholic tradition, Catholic in the, the big sense, is because it does have, among our best mystics, good teaching on darkness. Yes. Which means good teaching on the pushback, yes. the resistance, the non-knowing, and so forth. And, uh, you know, my biggest single demographic of readers are evangelicals, not Catholics. Huh. Mm. Because the young evangelicals just eat this up. They realize mm. they were never given 
any teaching on darkness, period. That's no, right. darkness mm. is a bad thing. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because one of the, my areas of background, I come from an academic background, and uh, and I always the joke on the podcast is that I'm a recovering academic uh, <laughs> because I teach outside the classroom now. But I focus on epist- epistemology, and epistemology, and, and it's exact. You're speaking all my language right here. I I, I applaud and and bow down at what you say here. This is lovely. Uh, <laughs> How do you know what you think you know with certainty? <laughs> Exactly. And, and look what it's done to our politics. Yeah, I totally. Mean, look at the state of this country. Yeah, totally. And, and Christianity has to take significant responsibility. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Western, yeah, Western civilization has decided we we went all in. Silence. I, I say to people all the time, silence is a way of knowing. And, of course. and that's good. You know, but no one talks about that. It's always about progress and knowing. And it's exactly what you just said. Sure. So regarding that, I'm thinking about if you're talking about development, I'm wondering if, do you see a sense of development for yourself personally? I know we talk a lot about how silence matches up with place. And you started off with us telling us you're in basically in the desert, in that hermitage. But you started in the Midwest and you've moved to various places. Have you seen silence change based upon your location over the years? I know it's also growth of your personality and what you've learned, but do you find that the places you've been, can you see or trace out some how silence spoke to you uh, at these different po- points in your life? You know, in the middle years when I was traveling all over the world preaching, I, I had to take my Lent or Easter time, it was one or the other, mm-hmm. in a hermitage uh, for, for survival for job security, mm-hmm. for speaking with some degree of integrity. I have to say, and I think this disappointed some of the people who who listen to me, I, I feel less need for that in my old age. I, I don't know what I'd get away from. Mm. You understand? <laughs> <laughs> it's all, it's all one. It's all here. It's great. Uh, now I also feel uh, a, at my age, a terrible lack of agenda. There's just, I don't know what my agenda would be. I don't. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to finish this book on the universal Christ. In fact, I might give them the final edit later today. Uh, so I'm sure after this book, there's nothing more I need to write or even should write. Hmm. So I, I feel agendaless. Interesting. <laughs> right now. And I, it, it, it comes across to me, I, I say this as a confession, almost as a lack of, it feels like a lack of motivation hmm. or a lack of caring hmm. or a lack of got to do this, got to do that. There's nothing I got to do. And it, it isn't comforting <laughs> right now. <laughs> like most of us, we are driven through our life. I see toys behind you there. You must have children. Oh, huh? I have I have a little five-year-old who will be coming in a little <laughs> bit later. Yes. So you have your agenda every day. Absolutely. And, and you, when that nest empties, you will feel empty too. You just, mm-hmm. oh my God, why do I wake up this morning? That's right. I finished this last Christ book. I think I'm beginning already to experience that. Uh, the center is doing wonderfully. We have... 40 people on the staff. Wow. They're all these young, creative millennials. <laughs> They're going to do far more with the message than me. Uh, but it, it feels like a loss of intentionality, a loss of motive, a loss of energy. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I have to go to a different place, which I think is just union with God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is the only yeah. where else to <laughs> go? Is uh, <laughs> well, the only reason to get up in the morning, right? But, yeah. Listening to you speak, and you know, and since we're using Skype here, being able to to watch you, Richard, you know, I'm not hearing I'm not hearing any depression or even oh, no. necessarily any angst. You know, there seems to be a serenity, and you know, but what when you're saying, you know, I have no agenda. Where I go is that sounds like just another dimension of silence that you're oh, being in. Good. 
that you're being mm-hmm. invited into. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of, you know, how in in Hindu culture, yeah. you know, you have you have the householder yeah, and right. then you have the forest dweller and then you have the renunciate. Yeah. And this is something that I've learned in my work with the Trappists over the years. You know, so many of the monks are you know, men in their 70s, 80s, even 90s. And it's been wonderful for me as a man, you know, currently in my 50s, started working with them when I was in my 40s, you know, a man in midlife to be mentored by these men who were, you know, in their 70s and 80s. And one of the first things that they said to me was, you know, that one of the gifts of being an older, an older man or an older adult, I think it's true for women as well, is the gift of contemplation. Yeah. That part of being a contemplative is being without agenda. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is, you know, yeah, Kevin with his children or me with my career, Cassidy with her career, we, you know, it's, it's natural for a person to have some agendas in their lives, but maybe, you know, you mentioned you just turned 75, maybe when you're 75, that's one of the gifts of being 75 is to start to kind of let that go a little. And that almost sounds like a wonderful place to be uh, to share with you. My wife is getting ready to retire. Oh. And and she, you know, she's an artist and has really kind of art has been on the back burner for her for some time now. We had a special needs child and, you know, then then our child passed away. And of course, there's a season of grief and all that kind of stuff. Well, now she's stepping out from her career. People ask, what are you going to do? And she says, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But she says that with a smile on her face. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's like, what a precious place to be. You know, to have it is, all, all I'd add to it in total agreement is it's a new set of demons. Yes. They're very subtle. Mm-hmm. How do you know that it's not just laziness? Yeah. How do you know that you're not helping these people because you're just selfish today? Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, that, I think that's yeah. a that's very insightful yeah. to to, yeah. to catch yeah. that it could be, you know, you that oh, it's love. It's okay. not just pure bliss here. That it's like the whole other level. Right. It's inner demons of self doubt. Yeah. Uh, that that can really uh, haunt you at times. Yeah. yeah. And I don't mean to over dramatize it, but it's different than I thought it would be. Like I said in a recent article I wrote somewhere, but I would say for almost 10 years now, I haven't had what I used to enjoy a lot, deep spiritual consolations, mm-hmm. or if I had any desolations, it's just sort of flatland, hmm. you know, just flatliner, every day get up, place one foot in front of the other, and trust you're doing it in love and union with God, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but there's no reassurance. Mm reassurance because i i got spoiled i think in my younger years by so many wonderful spiritual consolations mm. but i don't have those anymore now now you're starting to sound like the the person you mentioned before mother Teresa. Uh, that's starting yeah to sound. yeah well the big Teresa too uh, Teresa Pamela. yeah I think absolutely 18 years yeah. I've only gone ten, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not complaining. Believe me, I I have plenty of consolations, mainly from, you know, the response of people and the wonderful staff at our center. It's I'm spoiled. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of of some of these great names, and and I love that we just mentioned two wonderful women. Um, I'm curious about who you might consider your silence hero to be. One of the questions we typically ask our guests is if they have a silence hero, who would it be? And you can kind of interpret that however you would like. You know, I I can't remember the name right now, but I know somewhere in the last few months, someone gave me a name of a man who deliberately chose not to talk for the last 10 years of his life. You don't know who, who I'm talking about. No. Now I feel uh, like I want to Google that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and really, deliberate. Now, I, I would like to presume it was for good motives, for good reasons. Right. But the sure. way the story was presented to me was very much so, that he, he, he wanted to illustrate 
the limitation of words and the non-necessity of words and basically stopped talking the last 10 years of his life. I, I should have written that down. I'm sorry. I don't have a name. No, it's interestingly appropriate to not recall his name because it's wow. proving his point. He doesn't want to be named. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. We, we, we have the tomb of the unknown soldier, so now the unknown <laughs> silence hero. That's right. <laughs> Very that's good. Right. Yeah, that's good, actually. I like it. I have one more question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think you mentioned kind of the the state of contemporary politics, and I think we all can easily talk about some of the challenges we see in our culture, maybe in terms of the noise level or in terms of the current political discourse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious, having had this, being blessed with this career as a writer and a speaker and being able to travel around the world and being able to be involved in giving birth to this ministry now, uh, well, two ministries, the Living School and the Center, where do you see signs of hope? Well, you know, uh, I mentioned we have 40 people on our staff. Most of them are millennials mm. who have come here in some cases with significant cuts to their salary. Mm -hmm. Several worked in Hollywood, in the film and industry, and one on our board was in the Obama White House. They're a different species than my generation. Now, I admit their work ethic is very different than my generation. They sort of, they come and go as they want. But what they, achieve, what they achieve when they do come is phenomenal. It's just they, they don't waste time. Let me pick the obvious examples, like obsessions with gay marriage and abortion. It's just like their moral compass includes that issues, they can address them, but in a much broader way. They seem to have been born into a bigger field than we were born into, or I was born into. They jumped over a whole bunch of the dualistic dilemmas that we largely created, and it's made them much more creative than we are. Hmm. Just I, I've been with them all morning. I came here to the house just after meeting them, and their capacity for creative thinking and their humility, frankly, around me. I mean, I'm the only old man on the whole thing. <laughs> and their readiness to listen to me, to take notes, to even defer to my experience. I, I've never met people who have this combination of so much talent and so much humility at the same time. Wow. It's this is new. This is new. And I'm not saying this is true of all millennials, but those of them who have kept their rootedness mm. in their faith tradition are an amazing breed. They mm. almost illustrate the two halves of life, but already with their big toe in the second half of life at 32 and 33. Right. And that for me is very hopeful. So, yeah, that's my hope. And you're, you're so right. We, we just, I mean, I think most of us have to pray every day that we don't become cynics. Yes. I, I just, I often cannot watch the news. It's just like drinking poison. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really, it's like drinking poison. So I think it, I think it's Andrew Weil, the, the kind of the... the yes pop doctor. I mean, he's written a number of books, but he talks about taking a fast from the news. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, you know, just. It's true. It's true. And even though I know we don't want to be unaware. Right. But mm. you're not saying that. You're talking about deeper awareness. Yeah. 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 Well, I... I don't know if anyone else has any other questions. I have like 400 questions, but we can't keep you here all day. I, I, I mean, I, I think we all have 400. Yeah. I mean, your, 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 your stories and, and things are so inspiring and so helpful, and it's great to hear these responses. They, they help our work here on the podcast as well. So I, I don't know if anybody has anything to say, but I, I, do, I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us today and I'm answering. I'm to talk with people like you. Yeah, do whatever you want with this. It's fine. 
just hope it helps somebody. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Such well, a thank to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Richard. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you.